Well, guys, this morning, as uh, Vendetta uh, introduced us so well a few minutes ago, we are going to study the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And you can find this in your Bible. If you're old school and you have a paper Bible, which is awesome, open that up to Luke chapter 16. Or if you've got your mobile device, open that to Luke chapter 16. And just kind of scroll or turn with me to the bottom of that chapter where many of us will find the story of the rich man and Lazarus. What I want to share with you from the beginning of that story is just kind of to set the tone, a little bit of the historical background. So let's just dive right into the story. I'm going to read it, just the first paragraph for you again. Jesus said, There was a rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived in each day in luxury, lived in luxury every day. Now, the reason Jesus is telling a story about a rich man who's clothed in purple and fine linen is because he was talking to rich people people. He actually had a congregation gathered around him of poor people, regular, average, everyday, middle-class people, and very rich people who at that time mostly were the religious leaders of the day. These were people who were called Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, what was interesting about this group is that even though they were pastors, teachers, and leaders, they had great wealth because of how the faith was understood back in those days. You see, back in those days, if you were faithful, if you were good at the faith, that means that you succeeded in keeping the words of the law, the law of Moses. You knew the law of Moses, which meant you could read, and it meant that you did the law of Moses to the best of your ability. But you and I understand and know today, by the grace of God, that the law has three major purposes in our life, and one of them is to show us the need for a Savior. The others have to do with training and upbringing and interacting with God and being set up for the reception of our Savior, the Messiah, Jesus. But in particular, these religious leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they would attempt to use the law to try to be better at being human. So they considered themselves better humans than others, and this was the group of people that Jesus was actually sharing this story with. So you can see how the first sentence might get their attention. He automatically draws attention to a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. Now there's an interesting distinction between the purple and fine linen. The distinction was the purple was the outerwear. It might be like us dressing in very expensive fine clothes, like a nice silk suit or something for Sunday morning. But what was the linen? The linen was his underwear. So underwear is actually mentioned in the Bible. If anybody ever asks you where underwear is in the Bible, turn to Luke chapter 16. There's a whole diatribe here about the guy's clothes, and it includes his underwear. Matter of fact, the scripture says that he had such fine underwear, it was fine linen, that he wanted people to know that as his servants dressed him every day, he had the very best clothing from the bottom up, from the inside out. He had the best. And in fact, his money bought the best. Not only it buy the best clothes, but it bought the best servants. He was dressed by servants every day of the week. And in fact, what was happening was he was living each day in luxury. That means the six days of the week that it was perfectly fine for him to live in luxury as a rich person would. He would normally be charged with going to synagogue on the Sabbath. But the implication of the scripture is he not only not did that, 
he carried on his seven days of the week as though they were all about the same. So he had no real connection with God, no real relationship with God whatsoever by inference. So in other words, he simply lived his life in a small bubble of luxury where he was dressed from the finest all the way from the inside out. Never really spent time in the synagogue or with the poor. Pretty good context to start the story when you're talking to religious leaders who are very wealthy and who consider themselves set apart and separate and different from the average everyday person. And in fact, a religious leader back then would not even touch another person who wasn't a religious leader, somebody on the street, a poor person, would not touch them for fear of being ceremonially unclean. So they kept themselves separate from people who were suffering. Now, look at verse 20. The scripture says, at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores. Ooh. Now we have no idea what the sores were a symptom of. Could have been any type of skin disease. Could have been temporary, could have been permanent. We don't really know. But the guy was just icky, yucky, nasty, dirty, probably hadn't bathed in months, sick, covered with sores, and completely in need. Now, kind of like we talked about last week, it would be easy for us to look at the theology of something like this and try to understand who we are in the story. Are we the rich man or are we Lazarus? You know, and in some cases, parts of us could be either one. Maybe in sometimes in our, some cases in our lives, we've been both. But there's something deeper going on here. There's something more. At the gate was laid this beggar named Lazarus covered with sores, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. The scraps. Now back then, if you had a nice big meal every day, you probably had a lot of leftovers. Now you and I might grab a bunch of Tupperware and put the leftovers in the Tupperware, stick them in the fridge, let them get nice and soggy and yucky, and then three weeks later, throw them away. Or we might be diligent and pull them out and serve them for dinner again. Not the rich man. Back then, you couldn't refrigerate stuff. So if something got bad, you just got tossed out. Or if you just didn't need it, it would get tossed out if you're at a rich banquet. This would happen on a daily basis at the rich man's house. He would have a nice big spread every single day prepared for him. Then he would toss the food out into the street. It would get tossed out with the garbage. Now, what about these dogs? Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear the story of the rich man and Lazarus the first few times, I tend to think that Lazarus was probably visited by a cute little puppy like the one you see on the screen. In fact, that was not the case. What was happening was rich people would gather up wild dogs and would chain them up and would put them out in front of their homes for security. So for all intents and purposes, these people would have known the historical context that the rich man would have had dogs chained up in the front of his home for security. And they probably looked a little bit more like the rabid angry dog on the right than the cute little fuzzy puppy on the left. But either way, even to this day, if you present a sore to a dog, it's going to want to lick your sore. Now that's just gross. See a lot of cringes in the congregation this morning because that's just nasty. And here we're talking about rotten food being thrown out into the street and a guy covered with sores. It's just getting grosser by the minute. What is Jesus talking about? 
He's just getting gross and inappropriate, isn't he? He's talking to religious leaders of the day. Should not his language be holy and pure? He doesn't care. He's got something to teach. So the story gets just nasty. The dogs came and licked his sores. Now, you can Google dogs licking sores and find out all kinds of responses like sometimes there's like a, a, a peptide antibiotic in dog spit. I seriously spent time researching this. You guys have to have some pity. There, there's a peptide antibiotic substance that's found in dog saliva that apparently when dog saliva is applied to surface level human sores, it can provide relief from pain temporarily and perhaps even some healing. But if a dog saliva is applied to a deeper wound, then it can become septic and poison can travel into the bloodstream. Hopefully uh, my nurse friend Linda can uh, verify at least some of what I'm saying is halfway correct. But at any rate, what was happening was the guy was finding comfort. Now get this. The guy was finding comfort from the man's guard dogs who had access to his garbage leftover food. When they threw out the food, they would throw the food out to the dogs who were guarding the front of the home. So the dogs had access to the scraps that fell from the master's table. But Lazarus didn't. He didn't get any of that food. In fact, they you know, probably had relatives place him there so that maybe he would get some food. He didn't have any way to earn any food. He was poor. He was sick. And he longed to have some of the food, the scrap food that the dogs were eating. The dogs were probably chowing down on garbage, looked over and saw Lazarus, had pity on him, and decided to go over and lick his wounds. Now that's just gross, but interestingly, God was kind of taking care of the man in a strange sort of way, in spite of the fact that the rich man who lived up the hill in his home could have chosen to do that. Now that's the historical context of what's going on. And we find Lazarus in front of this home, hanging out, kind of by default begging for mercy and then the scripture throws this idea of the rich man being decadent and throwing parties in his home and hanging out. And then all of a sudden, the two of them just up and die. The rich man dies and he goes to uh, Hades, what we would call hell, and he's in torment. Uh, the poor man dies and he goes to what's called Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side. Now, the idea of this was that when people would eat dinner back then, which is what families would do together, they would gather together over a meal, uh, which is why we're asking you to invite neighbors over on uh, St. Patrick's Day to gather them for a meal. Back in that culture, they would gather folks for a meal together and they would recline at their tables. They'd kind of eat like this, reclined at the table. They wouldn't be necessarily sitting in chairs unless they were very wealthy but they would kind of lean against each other a little bit. And so Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side refers to being close to or in intimate friendship with Abraham. So the poor man died and went to what we would call heaven or Abraham's bosom. He was right by his side when he passed away. But what's interesting about this story is that it pictures for us what hell could look like 
and it also gives us a little glimpse of maybe what heaven could look like. But I would submit to you that probably the point of the story is not really about heaven or hell. There's a, there, there's a study of future things to come where we talk about heaven and hell and what those really look like in the scripture and what we can anticipate as followers of Jesus. For us as followers of Jesus, because Jesus died on the cross and then did what? He rose again, which is the other side of the gospel, right? He rose again from the grave um, and he grants us an abundant life, a full life. We believe that when our bodies die, we will spend eternity with God in what a lot of people call heaven. But what it really is, is just an extension of the kingdom of God. We live in the kingdom of God now, and someday when we die, we will live in the kingdom of God then. But for the purposes of this story, Jesus is making it very simple. The bad guy went to the hot place. The good guy went where? To the good place, to Abraham's bosom. And part of the reason why he does this is because of the audience that he entertains. Now, the image you see on the screen, if you're listening by podcast, is a Pharisee on one side and a Sadducee on the other. Pharisees were very wealthy. And in fact, the scripture says they had a lot of great wealth and they prided themselves in being good at their faith. Sadducees also had great wealth. But what was different about Sadducees is they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in any kind of afterlife whatsoever. They just believed that when you die, you just stop, which is why they were sad, you see. So glad you laughed. I'm so glad. I was afraid nobody was going to laugh. But they did not believe in any kind of heaven or hell whatsoever. The Sadducees, they would also have been in this congregation of people. And when Jesus told this story, he would have been jabbing his finger into an open theological wound for them. He would have been grabbing them by the, the left and the right side of their ears and theologically yelling in their faces. You're focusing on the wrong things. You're thinking about the wrong stuff. You're living your life backwards. And the way he would have presented this is through the story of the rich man. Now, what I'd like for you to do, if you're scanning down the story at all, if you're looking at the story at all, what you're going to find is three different interchanges that happen with the rich man. And as he's talking, he's, uh, he's dealing with and negotiating with the fact that he's in Hades and suffering. I want you to listen to the attitude he presents. Now, bear in mind, in this story, half the people out there listening don't even believe there's a heaven and hell. So they're just annoyed. They're already irritated, right? The other half believe in some kind of heaven or hell, but they believe that they can get there on their own, and they believe they have a right to be in heaven. Check out what's being said here. Here's the first one. The rich man shouts from Hades, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm in anguish in these flames. Now, here's what I want you to take from this. Two things. He calls out to Father Abraham. Now, let me ask you a question. How much of a relationship did this guy have with Father Abraham? Well, he was Jewish. Did he have a relationship with God? No. He stayed home dressed in his fine underoos and purples on the Sabbath day. Now, if you're, if you're a God-fearing Jew, you're going to get yourself up and go to synagogue on the Sabbath day. 
That's a part of the law, right? This guy blew that all out. He was like, too rich for that. Don't have time for all that, right? Dressed in the fine stuff, right? But now that he's in Hades suffering, he's calling Father Abraham out. He's trying to, to cash in on his religious connection. And he says, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here. Now, wait a minute. Lazarus was laying out in front of his home in life, suffering. What is the posture and attitude the rich man has toward Lazarus now? When he was living, Lazarus was the unclean that he kept outside of his home at a distance, right? But when they're now in death, and one of them's in Hades, and one of them's in heaven for all intents and purposes, what is the rich man's attitude toward the poor man now? What's his attitude? Is it collaborative? Like, hey, maybe we could get together and hang out since we didn't in life. What is his attitude and posture? He still considers the guy a servant in the afterlife. Even when he's roasting in Hades. His attitude is, hey, uh, Father Abraham, can you run Lazarus on down the road to get me a bottle of water? That's what's going on here. Now look at the second one. Check this out. Rich man said, now there's an interchange in here. Father Abraham is talking back and forth to him, right? Look at the second example. Please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home. Again, Lazarus is a servant. And we're in the afterlife here. Now, where is Lazarus in the story? Here's Abraham. Lazarus is hanging out right with him at the table. At, at the table like this, having an intimate meal with Abraham. So the rich man's calling down from there saying, Father Abraham, just, Father Abraham, just go ahead and send that servant-looking guy, Lazarus, out there to, uh, to, to tell my five brothers uh, so that they don't end up in this place. You see, even when he's denied the water, even when he understands his eternal outcome, his attitude in the story still has not changed toward Lazarus. In the story, it looks like things have changed because they've died and gone somewhere. But I think Jesus is teaching us, no, it's not about that. It's about the attitude of the man. It's not changed one little bit, has it? The guy is still an underling. He's still unclean. He's still a servant. Look at this third example. And again, there's another interchange between these two. The rich man replies, no, Father Abraham, excuse me, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. Father Abraham has corrected the guy twice. And on the third occasion, he says no to Father Abraham. The guy's calling out to Father Abraham, have pity on me. Father Abraham's saying, it's a little too late for that, right? But the guy's telling Father Abraham his business. He's like, no, you don't have it right. I know, you don't know. If somebody's sent to them from the dead, then they're surely to listen. And then if you scroll down into the story, right? Uh, you, look at, <clears throat> you look at verse uh, 31. Um, Abraham says to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now, at this point, 
the religious leaders probably just think Jesus is nuts. Because half of them are mad because he's talking about heaven and hell. The other half of them are mad because they're rich. Everybody's mad because Jesus is changing lives and they don't have the power to do that because they're more concerned about something other than the kingdom of God. They're concerned about their own wealth, their own riches. They're concerned about their own posture and their own, the way they look in front of their culture. And they're not concerned about God. They're not concerned about the heart of God. See, because the thing Lazarus had from the beginning that the rich man didn't was he had a heart after God's heart. Like David, he was a man after God's own heart. Lazarus never once, if you scan back over the story, Lazarus never once goes, na, 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 look where I am and you are not. Lazarus never does that. He never, ever exudes any kind of arrogance or I won kind of attitude. His attitude is humble. He's with his God from the beginning through to the end. And the posture that he presents in the story is a foreign concept to these religious leaders. Now they're the pastors and teachers of the day, but God is teaching them something about his heart in a way that would get their attention. Anytime you're gonna teach a concept to anybody, there has to be a context first. That's why we build relationships before sharing theological truths. That's why we have people over for dinner and build relationships with our friends and neighbors and family. There has to be a context through which truth is shared. Jesus cuts right to the chase. He uses the context of the life of his audience to get their attention. And then he shares kingdom truths about how the kingdom of God truly works. I want to share something else with you, uh, similar to this idea from the scripture. This is from uh, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Uh, Paul says this. He says, as you deal with one another, you should think and act as Jesus did. Now, this story is a good indication of how Jesus thought, felt, and acted. Wouldn't you say? This is why we study the parables. In his very nature, he was God, still is. Jesus was equal with God, but Jesus didn't take advantage of that fact. Instead, he made himself what? Nothing. See the posture here? He did this by taking on the nature of a servant. He was made just like human beings. He appeared as a man. He was humble and obeyed God completely. He did this even though it led to his death. Even worse, he died on a cross. And the scripture moves on and says, so God lifted him up to the highest place. God gave him the name that is above every name. When the name of Jesus is spoken, everyone will kneel down to worship him. Everyone in heaven and on earth and under the earth will kneel down to worship him. Everyone's mouth will say that Jesus Christ is Lord and God the Father will receive the glory, not me. 
Now, why is this important? We don't earn our way into God's favor. We don't even have the power to choose God. God gives us the power to receive him. And he gives us a calling to be a part of his kingdom spreading in the world, not by my power or might, but by whose? By Jesus's power and might. So what Jesus is teaching the religious leaders of the day is, here's how the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God is about your heart. All your money and all your clothing and all your standing and all your prestige, that means nothing if it is not led by a heart that is centered in the kingdom of God. It becomes like a clanging cymbal, a noise. Whereas if it's driven by the heart of God, then wealth and power and prestige and opportunity can be used in a powerful way. So the same message exists for you and me. The message is not just for pastors, though many pastors could stand to take this message to heart. Not a one pastor on this planet has the right to be arrogant or rude or lording power over people. But as we grow in faith, we descend. We take on the very nature of a servant. And we follow Jesus into servanthood. When that happens, God does miraculous and amazing things. When we get us properly aligned in the kingdom of God with who we are, a creation of God who is damned to hell, but rescued in grace, redeemed, rebooted, restarted, then life becomes new and powerful and important and abundant. Kind of makes you want to run around just like Molly does when she comes back to worship, right? Gives us a joy that is inexpressible. So what I want you to hear from this message today is encouragement. I want you to be encouraged. The power of God is in you, working through you, changing you, making you into the image of God for his purposes and for his reasons. When you hear a message from the outside of the truth that tells you you're not good enough, that you need to be better or be something that you're not, reject all that in the name of Jesus and remember who you are because God has made you perfect in his sight. And as he continues to shape you, the thing he starts with the most and best is your heart. Everything else flows from there, does it not? We, taking on the very nature of a humble servant, will see great things because of Jesus and his power. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you so much for giving us all that you have. The great power to believe who we are, that we are children of God. And being children of God, we only need to rely on you for perfection for holiness. 
Father, I ask that as we just take a quiet moment here, as we get ready to welcome the kids back in, I ask that you work in each one of us and let us receive encouragement by your power and by your spirit. Let us hear you tapping on the doors of our hearts. Jesus even said, he comes and knocks. And if we open that door, he will come in. He'll recline at the table with us and have fellowship. So God, we thank you and we praise you. We confess to you that sometimes we think more of ourselves than we ought. And sometimes we think less of ourselves than we ought. We are your children. We are in your power. And we live and grow and move around and have our being in you and only you. We praise you on this day and thank you. In your name we pray and together we say, amen and amen.